So what I did, I brought the, the suppliers on the journey and it's actually a capability that we have now in IT called SIAM, Service Integration and Management. And that's where we all the providers actually work together to understand how they collectively contribute to an organization's outcomes. Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, my guest is Katrina McDermott, who is Director of KJM Services. Katrina is a world authority in service management. Using her experience, Katrina has developed her own innovative approach called human experience agreements, and those agreements focus on the human outcomes of technology versus the technical outcomes of technology. Katrina's unique approach has provided training and consulting for many agencies, including the New South Wales Police Force, the Sydney Metropolitan uh, and New South Wales Health Departments, who have also embraced uh, Katrina's approach to IT. She is a contributing author to the ITIL4 official publication and has written white papers explaining how to incorporate human-centred design into IT service management. Alongside her training and consulting, Katrina hosts podcasts and blogs where she interviews some of the most influential and powerful business leaders across the globe. And indeed, Katrina was a guest at the GovComs Festival in 2020 where her presentation was on communications and transformation, getting it right. From her home in Sydney, Katrina joins me now. Katrina, welcome to the GovComs podcast. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you for having me. So human experience agreements, I like the sound of that. Take, take me through the journey of the problem that you've started to see and how you came to this particular solution. I would be delighted. And I'm also delighted, David, that you knew how to say ITIL. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, most people in non-IT say ITIL or IDLE. Uh, you said it very eloquently and correctly. <laughs> very, very good. One mark have for you, me. Have you uh, studied ITIL in your... No, 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 but I am aware of uh, the other products that uh, exist in the, the sort of P3, M3, all the other project management and other uh, products that exist in the uh, ITIL family or in sort of cousins, I suppose. Cousins, yes, that's the way of describing it, yes. And I always find it interesting that uh, ITIL is the most used framework across the globe with over 2 million um, IT professionals certified. And if you don't work in IT, you never heard of it, so you're forgiven. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that's how my journey began. I I worked for Qantas Airways for many years and I had done ITIL training. Uh, We could do different levels of training and I decided to do ITIL Masters. So that's the highest certification you can get in ITIL. And there's actually only three of us in Australia that have attained that certification and I'm one of them. And Qantas uh, very 
uh, kindly allowed me to use the airline as a case study for my ITIL master's. And that's, I guess, where my journey began on, on understanding about how uh, service levels that big companies, government, um, airlines, banks, insurance, all industries uh, have service levels with their providers. And typically, if not always, those service level agreements created and uh, promoted really poor behaviour between the provider and the organisation because they were driven by money and unfortunately money can um, drive bad behaviour. And it really came to light uh, studying the agreements at Qantas that they were all about um, technology, not about the customer or passenger experience or employee experience. So, for example, it was about uh, if a server was up or down, availability, how quickly or how slowly uh, an application uh, performed. And in all those agreements, there was nothing about how the customer or the passenger experience was enhanced or poor. And I guess that's where it all began. So with that, though, trying then to connect that, the, you know, the human experience as you've described it, how how did how do you make that connection, given that those service agreements were so tied to performance and, and outputs that weren't necessarily related to the experience? How how did you start everyone on that journey to understand that actually there is a, a person here, there's a customer here, and we need to bring them into the conversation? When I explain it, it's actually a pretty easy thing to to get um, buy-in because, David, everyone thinks IT is crap. <laughs> yep. There's, not a, there's no one listening to this podcast right now who thinks that their IT department is doing fantastically well. That's not right. It's, it's, it's a really easy sell. And it's just, it's, it's really interesting because that's just the way we've always done it. Uh, and, and typically when we negotiate service level agreements with, you know, big providers, you know, the big, big providers in the world, um, we really just grab the contract from last year or the last three years, update it, brush it off, update a little bit, and there you go. And I had the opportunity at Qantas to renegotiate the airline's largest service provider contract. It was um, for a lot of money over a 10-year period, so we had to get it right. And I actually formed, um, the supplier was Amadeus, and I had to form a, a strong relationship. I negotiated for a year the service level agreements. Um, they are complex. I mean, make no mistake about that because, again, of potential uh, money involved and governance of service levels. But I always give an example that, uh, and this is a true story, the bag tags at the airline were printing the wrong destination. When Amadeus gave the service level report for the following month, um, everything was green, meaning they had met all their service levels. And I'm not sure if you've heard of the term uh, watermelon reporting. David, have you heard of that? Uh, I haven't, no. So watermelon reporting is when the provider says, we've met all our service level commitments, it's all green. So it's green on the outside, but on the inside, the business is screaming, how could it possibly be green? We had a major outage at the airport last month. And that's because the service levels were written on the technology side. So the system was up, it was available, so tick. The response time of those tickets 
was they were printing in a timely manner, tick. And the service provider was allowed to have three priority incidents a month before there was any breaches. So it was all green. And, and not in any of those was it about the customer. And as I said, and, and importantly, the employee experience. And that's how I got buy-in because especially, at, as you said, David, what, what company or employees say, IT is fantastic. <laughs> so when I started, you know, looking and, and researching into how might, we might do this different, it was a very, very easy sell. But how then technically do you make the service providers aware of their needs and responsibilities to customers and indeed how do they take responsibility for the delivery of that experience? Mm, Another good question. (laughs) Because a lot of organisations don't bring their service providers on the journey and understanding how they contribute to the outcome. It's really you provide this technology service make sure the service is available. Uh, if it breaks, fix it within an agreed time frame. So what I did, I brought the, the suppliers on the journey and it's actually a capability that we have now in IT called SIAM, Service Integration and Management, and that's where we all the providers actually work together to understand how they collectively contribute to an organisation's outcomes. Because before that, the providers don't speak to each other. Mm. And so with that, and so with that, that that's this unique approach that you've developed. This sort of human experience agreements is that is that what that has evolved into? Correct. And if I may go back a step too, um, my role at Qantas was uh, I was a service designer um, in the ITIL framework. Uh, That was a, a phase in the life cycle. That's what I did. I designed service level agreements. So I was a service designer. Um, and there's a, a whole other way of working out there called human-centred design. And human-centred design is very big now in, in the companies. It's all about digital, creating that beautiful experience when you walk into a, uh, a grocery, into Woolworths, that, you know, you turn right, the trolleys are there, the fruit's there. Your whole experience of, of shopping and walking through that, um, that uh, grocery shop And I um, got approached to actually do training in human-centred design because they thought the design I was doing was human-centred design and it wasn't. I was doing IT design. Uh, Long story short, I ended up sitting in a class and then actually ended up teaching. But while I was sitting in that human-centred design course, which is all about the customer experience, I'm like, why don't we do this in IT? Why don't we create the customer experience from an IT perspective behind the closed doors of IT, not the front doors. And that was um, really the light bulb and also a really big moment for me about putting human-centered design into IT operations and into service level agreements. Hmm. So IT shops, um, as they're commonly referred to in enterprises, uh, are not known for you know, their, their focus on, on people, their skills tend to rest on the technology side. I think that's probably a generalisation, but maybe a, a reasonable generalisation. You said it was an easy sell to be able to, to get people to be considered, but how was it an easy sell in, a, in an environment that may, may have been traditionally antagonistic to, to that, that sort of approach? I think that you need... Um real 
prominent and um, strong leaders that are prepared for the change. And I was fortunate I had that at Qantas. Um, but again, when I consult and when I train, it's it's again, it's I hate saying this again, but it's a no-brainer. I, I use I use the phrase, uh, David, um, different logo, same problems. No matter where I go, IT has the same issues. <laughs> um, uh, tickets aren't logged properly. Um, people aren't taking responsibility for the tickets. Onboarding is terrible. Um, you know, things don't work. Things are broken. And so I say, you know, we need to change things and be innovative and put the customer first. And, of course, as I said, you, you do need that, that leader and people with that vision to want to change things. And at what level do you need the leader to be engaged? Is it the chief technical officer? Is it the chief information officer? Does it have to be at that higher level? Or are you not going to succeed unless you have the buy-in of those senior executives? Yeah, it would have to be at that senior level uh, because uh, there is investment. Uh, it would probably be uh, risk to that organisation. Um because if I, I tell you a secret, David, don't repeat this. <laughs> Sometimes, um, you know, I said right at the onset that service level agreements do promote pretty poor behaviour sometimes. Sometimes organisations rely on, as, as a, a form of revenue, if you will, for service levels to be breached and for the provider to pay that. And that's also something there to be considered. I don't know if you've heard of that happening in other areas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, no. So, and, and a lot of, because we live in such a multi-vendor um, outsourced environment these days, um, it's very ingrained in how an IT organisation is structured, their, their culture, uh, lots and lots of things. So, as I said, it's it's not easy, but I, I there is just that thirst um, and quest for, for change in IT organisations. And it's very exciting. It's very exciting to be part of it. So what role does communications play in driving that change and in driving the uptake of, of human-centred design? This is a podcast for people who work in government communications and not, um, not always uh, are, are they uh, a part of um, the IT area, but often the IT areas have responsibility for the website, you know, for other applications. And so there has to be a Quite a close relationship between the communications and the and the ICT areas of various uh, public sector enterprises. So, so what's your advice around communications and how communications can can play a part of um, delivering better outcomes for for citizens and for customers, and to ensure that there's a ultimately that better experience that you've described. Absolutely, and I, and I think I was actually meant to say this when I was thinking about it this morning, David, is that essentially a lot of companies have a divide in IT. So we have digital yeah. and we have the IT organisation. And I, th I think many government organisations have done a, a terrific job. Um, I actually was doing some training for our New South Wales Police Force and we all said what an amazing website um, Service New South Wales is you know, well factor, that, you know, they got it right, they communicated um, back end, front end. But there's also other websites that perhaps um, didn't really embrace that digital 
way of working. So digital would typically, as a general statement, use human-centered design. They will be measured on customer experience. IT organizations typically do not. And I think you can see a really big difference when you go to a government website where they have not used a digital human-centered design approach to their, their website. And so the communications um, and how they communicate to the customers is, is very, very poor. A key concept of human-centered design is understanding who your customers are. And that's a really big part of communications. And in ITIL, I, I sort of say in how we're born and bred, we, we were sort of, there was just one person. We had a user. That was our customer, user, or end user, we used to say. But in human-centered design, we've got different types of users from age to, to um, religion to capability, their tech, tech savvy, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all part of the communication. So I think... In, to answer your question, just be mindful of everyone that you're communicating to, how they like to be communicated to, and um, maybe, you know, who is their uh, decision maker with, within their ecosystem. How do you do that well? Because I often get sort of caught by this in because it's endless the amount of segmentation that you can go on with to try to understand the various users and this notion of personalization and that everybody should have an experience that's relevant to their competency or their their views or their you know uh, their, their capability their access there is just so many different ways that you can slice and dice it What's your advice on how best to manage that almost infinite problem? Uh, short answer is uh, creation of uh, personas. Okay. So big companies spend a lot of money, a lot of money creating personas, and I'm not sure, don't know if you know this or not, they're under lock and key. So their whole service model is built on five or six personas. And that's how we typically do it. Because you're right, um, you know, there could be hundreds of different ones, but the creation of personas or archetypes uh, is typically used in this. Because, again, you know, um, I'm very, my experience is very different to my mother's. And that would be my mother's persona might be a man, you know what I mean, but it's someone that's not very tech savvy, um, might needs to go slow, might have a hearing impairment, et cetera, et cetera. Because hmm. this is obviously a key part of, you know, modern communication, understanding the audience and being able to group the audience up into these, um, as you say, the archetype, um, the persona, whatever the word it is you want to describe that. How, how have you seen that done well? You know, do you have to have primary research in place to be able to understand these audiences or are there other ways of being able to gather insights that help you to uh, define and segment these personas? Yeah, you can do it really well and, um, as I said, it, it costs a lot of money. You can, you can spend months and, and hundreds of thousands or you can do, you can create pro proto-personas, that's another word, where, you know, you can do it a shorter timeframes and, and not spend so much money. Uh, so that's called proto-personas. Right. 
And in a in generally, uh, say from your experience, what what's the best way, or does it just depend on how much money you've got? Because if you've got lots of money and lots of time, you can then understand not only the persona, but then the the journey mapping and everything that goes with it. And build the empathy, et cetera, et cetera. Look, I, I find, you know, my, my business model is about rapid outcomes. Um, so I yeah. like to do things quickly. I think that um, we all we can we all know who our customers are. You know, we get, we get in a, a workshop, we brainstorm. You know, we can do this pretty quickly uh, and it's very effective the way we can do it also. So it's absolutely yeah. doable. No, I, I tend to agree with you. I think there is a way to, um, you know, rapidly prototype the proto persona and then be able to sort of test and learn as you implement a program so that you can start to see whether you start to test some of the assumptions that you've made. And over time, you know, you start to learn more, don't you? You see the behaviour, you see how people behave, and then you can uh, update your persona as you start to see the the trends, trend lines around different important behaviours. Absolutely. And it's like I, I still to this day don't understand why government agencies, all most companies, uh, when you ring them for help, they don't know who you are. Why don't they have a profile on you? You know, if, they've, if you've rang before. Um, but we don't do that. We just, everyone's, everyone's the same. A user has called and so there's all these things that we can do to start understanding the customer. And I also think that, you know, I, I meet with, I'm fortunate enough to meet with a lot of CIOs and, and CTOs and they say, you know, Katrina, I want my IT organisation to be more customer-centric, you know, think about the customer experience. The issue is they, they haven't been trained to do that. And, you know, we say, oh, yes, Katrina, we do this, we do customer surveys at the end of a, a call. That is not understanding your customers. And, you know, you're mentioning keywords there, David, you know, the prototyping, you know, fail fast, fail often. How do you walk in someone's shoes, build empathy? Um, I think it's really important for everybody working in a service industry just to do some type of overview of human-centred design. How mature do you see the, uh, the implementation or the integration of human-centred design into service design is it are we at the very very early stages of what will be um, a longer integration or is it is it early maturation where, where are we on the on the on the maturity scale um, at the pretty much at the beginning uh, in IT in the IT organization not in digital but in IT in my world 100 yeah People might disagree with me and say, oh, no, we're doing this. I think they're starting to do it. Um, and I do see a change. I absolutely do. But we're at the beginning. And that's why it's really exciting, you know. I think I've been a catalyst in promoting this type of human experience agreements where we don't report, as we said, about that a, a server was available or the response time was um, acceptable. We report about that, um, you know, 100% of passengers could change their seats. Um, 100% of passengers could check in. 100% of passengers could board. You know, that's that's the things that we want to start reporting on. Don't really care. Well, we do care, obviously, but I always say those type of 
um, IT metrics belong in the back page of a report, not the front page. Yeah. So they're still important to have, but they're, as you say, they're not telling the story of what the technology delivered in terms of that experience or service. They're more just reporting on the functional um, outputs of the technology stack. Correct. Hmm. So what's, what, what's some of your best advice then to, to people who are listening to this podcast about working in IT and working with IT people? If you're coming from a, a comms background, how should they learn more about people working in, in IT to better understand them, to, you know, to ultimately achieve better outcomes for citizens? Absolutely. And I think it's a two-way street. I think that whilst as the designers in IT, we should have empathy for our customers um, and employees, uh, the employees need to have empathy with people in IT. So it's, it is a two-way street. And so a, a key tenant is um, in ITIL 4 now is what we call value co-creation. Um, so how would I go about it? Engagement um, with the right stakeholders, um, study, reach out to me. Um, you know, there's lots, there's lots of webinars and everything on this, David, on, on, on human-centred design. And I, I'm really passionate about it because before I learned about human-centred design, I was travelling down this road and I thought I was doing a damn good job. And what we tend to do in IT uh, is we follow best practice. Best practice says we do this best practice says we do that and we do do it and that's what I say if best practice is so best why does everyone think IT is rubbish so it's <laughs> it's having that I guess um, mindset and I, I, I find it really exciting because when I train or consult with IT professionals they're like oh yeah and they get it um, but yeah how do we do that and I, I think it's what we're saying we need to have buy-in because there is an investment as well um, but I, I really strongly urge for for our listeners to just do some research on human-centered designer as I said reach out to me more than happy to to um, help people absolutely hmm. but really it's 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 pretty simple in in many ways though isn't it it's to really as you've mentioned a few times use the word that empathetic understanding of the person who you're seeking to service to influence to achieve an outcome for and then just taking some time to ask some basic questions about what their lives are alike and where in fact your service or your experience uh, or your product connects with them and try to explore that in a way that is simple and compelling so it helps to obviously make greater sense. Absolutely. And, and again, it's like we've always just travelled around this best practice road. And, you know, an example is, again, we, the CTOs, CIOs want the customer experience, but we've got these metrics on the service desk that don't, don't spend more than 10 minutes on a call. <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that. Um, pass the ticket on to level two. Uh, level two gets it. Oh, it's not mine. It goes elsewhere. I mean, it's just crazy. And I, I love telling um, my students or clients that there are companies in America that actually encourage and, are, and people on the service desk are rewarded to spend more time on the service desk call because people say, oh, we have to get, we have to pass that ticket on because there's, there's a queue, there's this, that and the other. 
what happens, it certainly keeps me gainfully employed, is that now we go, we've got such bad customer complaints, we have to improve things. So it is absolutely um, that worth the uh, investment in, in doing this right now, not wait, because we know it doesn't work. We, we know it doesn't. We need to change how we do things. Mm. Uh, but with human-centred design as well, it's not just about IT, is it, or about improving uh, IT? Because I know in uh, a framework that we've we've developed here at Content Group with the Australian National University around effective communication programs, you know, audience is the first, second, third, fourth and fifth most important thing. And that's where you spend most of your time trying to build that understanding because ultimately effective communication is about how it is received and acted upon not how you felt it may have been tra transmitted against a, a key message or some other such construct. Yes, absolutely. And, yes, human-centred design is, is used in many, many places. But my differentiator is bringing human-centred design into IT operations mm. and looking at the people side because typically it's front of house that we do human-centred design. I want to do human-centred design in the design of service level agreements in the design. I mean, we never used to do journey maps, David, in, in IT ops. We used to get the Visio out and Microsoft Word. Never, ever did yeah. journey maps. Um, never thought about personas. As I said, the only persona we had was um, VIP and user. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure the CEO's machine doesn't fall over. That was it. And as I said, that's just the way it was. And, um, you know, these, these, these type of service level agreements that just did not think about the customer. It thought about how the service provider um, performed. Mm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're going to have a very rich and uh, happy experience over the next little while because it sounds <laughs> like there will be demand uh, for your, your skills and experience, which is great. Listen, just some more, maybe just to wrap it up on a couple of more general um, observations uh, about um, the world of, of business and IT and government. You know, what, what are you seeing at the moment as in your world that is the most pressing issue that people, that uh, organisations are trying to deal with? I guess from being a, both a consumer and a user of IT, uh, there is that drive to have, and, and I think it's fantastic, as I said, to have a better customer experience. And, and I give the example that um, a few months ago I had to ring up a council. I had to get a copy of my rates. So it was, it was government. And one, someone answered the phone. Two, my rates notice was in my inbox within two minutes. And I had the wow factor. <laughs> and that's what I, there's the opportunity there to start developing because, yeah, especially now, as you said, there's got to be more and more reliance on, on technology. Start thinking about the wow factor first and then design what technology you need around that, not the other way around. Yeah. So in terms then, just as a final question then, about, you know, where you see the, you know, the IT world evolving given the, you know, the widespread lockdowns that we're, uh, seeing across Australia at the moment and around the world, um, you know, the huge change, the huge reliance on, on IT. What are, the, what are the things that are keeping people up at night at the moment as this change happens at warp speed? 
Yeah, I, and I also should have mentioned that I kind of made out that, um, you know, IT's rubbish. What I should also say, and I, I should have said it very early, is when COVID first hit, um, I did a post on LinkedIn and to the extent that uh, nurses and frontline staff and medical were, were doing an amazing job, a heroic job, and I'm not taking that away. But what was not getting highlighted was the work that IT organisations did to remobilise organisations and to keep this country going, to be honest. Um, you know, IT professionals worked night and day under conditions that we'd never experienced before. And, and you know yourself, Deb, like trying to do all the BCP, business continuity planning, IT service continuity planning, unbelievable. And so I just wanted to praise um, my people, IT professionals on that also, so it's not all bad. Um, but I think it's that, if I'm going to be honest, I'm really surprised how much um, IT is adopting or evolving now um, and how IT is supporting our new world. By that I mean, you know, Zoom, um, the reliance on technology more than ever. And I think that this is where... Um, it's coming into really good play that we can actually do a good job <laughs> when we're given the opportunity in, in, you know, keeping the business afloat and outcomes uh, keeping happening. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, listen, Katrina McDermott, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And I'm very grateful that, uh, and I know the audience is as well for you to share uh, some of your experiences and insights. And I'm, Sure that many of the communicators listening uh, today, they're probably aware of human-centred design but maybe have not quite sort of grasped the opportunity, uh, as you've clearly articulated it today, to, to put the citizen, to put the customer at the heart of what it is that you're trying to do. Um, but also I think there's that point of, uh, and I think you made the point really nicely around empathy and in engaging with uh for example, IT areas, if you're a, from the comms area, take the time to prepare and be thoughtful when you're going into an environment so that you've explored at least in some way, you know, what's on their mind? What are their big issues? You know, what are their, their, their troubles? And as a communicator, I think the great strength and power of the communications people can be uh, as, the, as, the as people who join up organisations and who can, um, you know, uh, challenge silos, so to speak. So, because IT, I suppose, is a, you know, traditionally seen as the ultimate silo. Uh, so, I think that that advice around being prepared and, and before you go in to engage with the IT area, because you're going to need them, and you may as well get them to work for you. And a little bit of preparation and a bit of thoughtfulness around that uh, never hurts. So, um, thanks for the advice. Thanks for your time today. Uh, very grateful for it. Absolute pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. And to you, the audience, thanks again for coming back to listening to another episode of the GovComs podcast. What a great and very, very interesting person Katrina McDermott is and this sense of human experience agreements and making sure that those service level agreements now actually look at the experience of the person that they're looking for. And I think we can learn, we can learn from that. Uh, in all the work that we do as communicators, where are the people in the plans that we're working? Are we, you know, putting their needs front and centre as we start to work through, um, you know, the myriad of options that we have to reach out, to engage, and indeed to listen to people? Because I think that's another piece of uh, 
Katrina's advice is that there is such opportunity to listen and get feedback so as that we can learn uh, a lot more about the people who we are seeking to serve. So another great podcast. Uh, And thanks again to Katrina McDermott. And thanks to you for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time in about two weeks with another wonderful guest from the world of government communications. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.